Hi, you're listening to Stark Contrast, a Game of Thrones podcast at MovieFail. My name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Jay Rosenfield. And uh, today we're going to be discussing the second episode of Season 8 of Game of Thrones, uh, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Um, so, uh, before we start, I just want to uh, make sure that everybody listening is aware that there is going to be some exciting news at the end of the podcast, so stick around for that. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, a little bit of foreshadowing there. Um, something a little bit unusual for uh for for movie fail um and uh yeah um so yeah let's let's get into this episode um i i want to preface this conversation saying that we have both read the extensive com uh read the extensive comments that have been left by you lovely listeners on our website <laughs> um i really appreciate all of the uh the the kind words and the uh um uh, rebukes <laughs> of our of our, um, of our our positions on the show. Uh, the actually the depressing thing is, despite all of the uh, sort of the strong um, fandom around the show, as I said last time, I, I think I said last time about the episode uh, uh, Beyond the Wall that was just so egregiously awful. Um, even the most diehard fans seem to be recognizing that there's like something a little bit off about the show at this point. And I think that even with that, that premiere, I started to see that as well, where even like really um, intense fans were like, yeah, there was something a bit off about it. A lot of, you know, the response, the di the difference comes in in whether or not you care. And, you know, obviously we cared quite a bit. Uh, the response from some fans was like, well, you know, the writing's bad, but the writing's always been bad and it is what it is. Um, so, you know, that's sort of where the difference was. It wasn't a difference of evidence, <laughs> a difference of opinion on that evidence, um, which is perfectly reasonable. Um, but what I will say, and uh, I suspect just going off of, I tried not to read your tweets, <laughs> Jay, before we... We, really, because uh, I started. I had a, a couple tweets. <laughs> I know. I in fact, one of them I saw just before I watched the episode, so I actually knew about the thing that you probably want yep. to talk about the most. Um, but uh, yeah, I was incredibly happy to have an episode not written by David Hill. It turns <laughs> out, or Dave, Dave Hill. Is it is it's it Dave David Hill. Hill? It's Dave, Dave Hill. Well, fine, Dave. Well one of the Davids. Um, so last week, I think perhaps unfairly, we attributed some of the um, medioc mediocrity of that premiere to David Nutter. And um, I don't think David Nutter is a brilliant director. Uh, I think he, he strikes me, especially looking at his filmography as like, I go to DV, uh, like TV guy. He just seems like the guy people get to do episodes with no, you know, thought to like a, you know, a unique voice, that kind of thing. Um, and he's pretty much going to be as good then as his writers. And uh, whereas last week we had Dave Hill, this week we have Brian Cogman. Brian Cogman has been around since the beginning of Game of Thrones. Mm. Uh, and this is, and that means it, it dates all the way back to, you know, season one when we considered the show to be good. <laughs> um, so, and, and he wrote episodes of many, many, uh, actually, very quality episodes throughout the series, uh, including uh, two of my favorites, which are, um, or two that come to mind uh, most immediately, which are Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things from season one, and then Oathkeeper, which I think was in season four. That sounds right. Both of which, both of which, um, well, I, I like 
crippled spaces and broken things. I think you did as well, um, just in talking about it in reference, although our podcast wasn't going at the time. And Oathkeeper, looking back at our um, our write up of that that episode, we both really enjoyed that as well. So I think Brian Cogman has a good history with the show, and I think the writing the, the jump in writing quality of this this episode is just immediately apparent. Uh, at least to, you know for, to, to me. Um, here's the I don't here's the thing. Um, I still think that the writing in this episode is not very good, but it is bad. The way, the way that I don't think it's very good is in a dialogue sense. I think a lot of the dialogue is kind of hacky, uh, but a lot of, oh, that's so and, but a lot of it's good. There's thought, listen, I thought it was so much better. <laughs> I, it is better than last week. There's no question. Um, but it is still a lot of characters saying things that the writer needs to be said rather than characters saying things that a character, that a person would say. Um, you see this a lot in the early parts of that fireside scene, which develops into something that I think is great, um, I, that I really liked. But what I was going to say is that while I had some trouble with the dialogue, I think structurally the writing is is sound. The, the foundations are sturdy in this episode. The uh, with, with one notable exception... <laughs> which we'll get to <laughs> with one very notable exception. I think that each individual scene is, uh, is, is decent in its conception, if not necessarily in its execution. Um, it's a, a lot, like I said, of characters just sort of saying things that need to be said rather than what you think they might actually say. That's so funny. I felt like there was so much of this that was written in a um, in a non obvious, non expositional way. Which I, I just—it's funny that you say that because I just it it struck me in, in just the opposite manner. Um, I I don't think that this is you know I didn't come away from this episode going wow that was you know it's not even one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones or anything like that. Um, I mean, I do. I did get this distinct impression that last episode and this episode could be combined into one episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it and it could be called a "Night of the Seven Kingdoms," and actually, we can just delete the previous <laughs> episode because <laughs> it's a complete waste of time. Um, like, there was just no reason for the previous episode. There's like, you know, a revelation because they like include a revelation per episode, I guess, but they could just put that in this episode. That doesn't need to be in a separate episode. Um, especially since the payoff is immediately, you know, one week later, um, you know, we've already told Daenerys the, the big news. Um, so yeah. Uh, but I just think that like, especially even using that as an example, like compare the scene where um, Sam tells John about his heritage and then, the scene where John tells Dan Danny about it. I mean, like, it's just, to me, this scene was so much better than last week. And it has, you know, an average of worse actors in the scene. Right? Cause like, <laughs> it does. I think, right. But it, it just, it's better because I think it was written better. And, and there's all these non sequitur moments throughout the episode that are just much more in keeping with, I think the characters and also don't necessarily advance the plot at all, but are just telling us a bit about them. Um, like I loved Tormund's weird story. Tormund's about... story is so it, good. It's brilliant. It's so good. It's so it it's so good, and it's actually apparently from the. I, I just to, to throw this out there, it's um I I laughed. I thought it was extremely funny, but it was also it's um it was in a Storm of Swords or a version of that story is in a Storm mm -hmm. of Swords, 
Um, and in that, he uh, he he kills a giant and like gets into its like hides in its skin or hides in its stomach, like um, like the Revenant or uh, Star Wars or something. Um, and then a giant like finds him and then nurses him or something. But similar idea. Um, and apparently, it's all pulled from a uh, a, a link to the article about this. But it's pulled from a Brothers Grimm story. Oh wow! Um, where a similar sort of thing happens, where this guy gets. Um, he gets abducted by giants and he ends up getting raised by them and he gets like and he's uh he's sort of a nobody in his town or something and then he gets giant's milk which makes him like big and strong but when he comes back to the town nobody recognizes him anymore and he also has this like incredible uh uh hunger or thirst that he can't quench anymore because he's raised on giant's milk so like that's i think the uh, allegedly the origin of the story that that george r. r martin sort of pulled out and then the showrunners then pulled from a previous book but yeah i mean it has origins in this story and it's uh it's just incredibly like it has no there's no reason to tell that story of other than to reaffirm why we like Tormund and to um you know build build his character out a bit and also get some reactions from other people and i i think this this, this episode's filled with a lot of really great moments like that there's also that great moment you know and we talk a lot about how the the show focuses so much on nobility and doesn't really have any real critique of them just that everyone's bad um but there's this great scene uh talk about and this is writing i mean <laughs> you know it is um where uh uh sir davos is is on soup duty for some reason that that doesn't make much sense to me but anyways he's he's handing out soup to soldiers uh and gilly's telling the women where to go and the children um and then uh there's this kid who's determined to be a soldier and fight because can't i'm actually i don't know the, the gender of this child but their um their sibling uh their siblings their brothers both went off to fight and so they wanted to also fight and um the uh and and Gilly actually convinces uh, this child to to stay and defend the the crypt. In other words, getting the, the kid into the crypt. But it's this person who has absolutely no real um, stake in like the the Game of Thrones, right? And and it's one of these rare instances where we get a glimpse at like the world of Game of Thrones or the world of Winterfell, even. Um, and I just thought that was really fantastic. So I mean, for me, this episode's filled with little moments like that that are just so much so much better than last week's. Uh, episode and much more reminiscent as some folks pointed out uh, on twitter of um of earlier seasons of the show i agree with you i agree with you that that scene does represent the some um, like like we talked about last week how the world of game of thrones is so devoid of people except for the main characters you know there are extras in the background obviously but sometimes there isn't even that right <laughs> like we've talked about in the past like sometimes it's just empty cities and the only people who matter are the main characters so i did like that moment of we get a sense for for this rare moment of what it's like to live in this world and not be a main character. Um, I don't think it was a particularly insightful moment, like once when you really get down to it, because all it's really saying is, wow, it sucks <laughs> to be a person in this world. But it's good that we got it. Um, but that moment also references one of the stupidest things. Well, it's about also about kids. It's also about kids and kids having to, you know, feeling the burden of fight. It, you know, it's a it's a moment that's supposed to say, you know, this is a kid who's it's not a you know uh, the I, we've seen it where like kids end up in charge of houses and that's you know yeah. a, a recurring theme that's sort of worn it's <laughs> worn through its welcome I suppose. Um, but it, this is a kid who just wants to to do their personal family uh, sort of lineage proud, right? Like that's the point of 
of of that scene is to say that that that's what this kid wants to do and how heartbreaking that is that they are literally sending kids off to fight or that they uh you know and and while he you know they were able to dissuade this one person um other kids may not be dissuaded and may end up going to fight because that's all they have to fight the army of the dead yeah i mean but this is aria's arc too right like that we've seen this since season one with with characters um but I, I agree. It's like, it's not bad. I don't think it's bad at all. Um, I think the show, it's kind of well-trod territory for the show, though. Um, mm, okay, but, fair enough. But with a non-noble character. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's why it's, that's why there is value in it, I think. Mm. But what gets me about this scene is that it references probably the stupidest thing about this entire episode, which, which, which it was a real, like, I did, it didn't occur to me until the episode ended. And then I like I it, it it ended and the credits rolled and a couple minutes later I was like wait are you wait and that's that the place that they're storing all the all the innocent all, all the citizens who can't fight mm. is in the crypt and they are right. fighting an enemy that brings dead bodies back to life let that sink in for a second yeah that's that's kind of dumb what are they doing. It's crazy. Well, the first thing to be to be done in any of the... I mean, the first thing they should have done full stop as soon as they knew they were fighting an army of dead people who, who, who John, in a very uh, fantastic scene, um, uh, fantastical, fantastic, and also, um, you know, it's like a show-stopping moment, uh, sees the Night King do in Hardhome yep. several seasons ago. So he knows full well how that works. Um, so the first thing that should have been done when they knew they were fighting this enemy is exhuming all of the dead and yeah, them. Yep. <laughs> um, but sh- because they didn't do that, you know, you're kind of left with this, uh, but I mean, look, it's going to be, I really don't look, we're all hoping Miguel Sapochnik does an amazing job with this battle next episode, right? Yeah. That is oh yeah. The, that is the, that is the hope, but he cannot undo the unbelievable situation that they have found themselves in. And it's one that I had actually blocked out of my mind until uh, one intrepid uh, Twitter user uh, uh, managed to remind me of. And that is this incredible... So this was David Roberts, who is um, like a climate reporter and does other cool stuff. Uh, You should follow him, Dr. Vox. Cool guy. Um, But he tweeted about uh, uh, Game of Thrones theory, which I'm, I would like to, to, to talk about, but reminds us all of this unbelievable thing that's happened in, in um, Beyond the Wall, that episode from last season that was uh, infamously ridiculous, which is that if you kill one of the White Walkers, you kill every single dead person they've ever brought back to life. Yeah. Which makes their presence in any battle kind of absurd. Because they're on the front lines. They are the, the front, front line. Lines. They are the front line. Um, and like, I don't know how Spachnik's going to navigate around this unbelievably ridiculous fact. And maybe he did. Maybe he came up with a way to like make it clever or maybe that, you know, uh, we have no real way to know until we see the episode. But like, if you're at that level of logic then like no of course they're not going to exhume the dead and burn them the way they should because the show doesn't operate in that sphere that's, anymore that's it's, true that's you know true. what i mean like it's just <laughs> it's, i mean it's it's in such they've set it up in such a way that like if the night king dies 
uh, it seems to be that just everyone dies. Like all of the the White Walkers and and the um, the Whites and all the rest of it will die. Like that's yeah. seems to be the scenario that they have created for themselves. And if that's the case, that like you know the 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 whole plot is really on shaky ground, and how they resolve it with a battle is going to be fascinating it is this it is this wild setup if if you really dig into like what is set up at the end of this episode is that the whole concept of this battle is that they're supposed to be outnumbered that the army of the dead has is so vast that they they have to win they say this in the episode like we can't win in a straight-on fight because there are too many of them we have to use some sort of strategy but 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 I should point out they're so big and there's so many of them that they can't avoid them except for Tormund and his group who were able to go around the army. We went around them. I love how they exp- we went around them. We went around them. <laughs> we went around them, but nobody else could possibly make it past them. So we're it. Okay. So we're in this situation, and everyone has everyone has weapons that can kill a White Walker. You know, yep. like. Those things, the, the dragon glasses is, might be like poison to them. Like maybe you could scratch one and it'll just disintegrate. Seems to be, yeah. And Which again poses this question about this stupid dragon. Yeah. Like, this dragon seems to be uh, completely um, vulnerable. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> this big scary dragon is like a complete, it's like the smallest of the three dragons if I remember correctly. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and all you need to do is hit it once with any sort of dragon glass or Valyrian steel or another dragon or any of these things and you'll just kill it. So really like, yeah, you're right. They've set up this, this, you know, indomitable force, this impossible battle, but all they have to do is kill like 10 guys who are in front as far as we can tell, yeah. It's although in previous battles they have sort of st- sat on cliffs and stuff while they watch the battle take. Yeah, place. I mean, yeah. This is so, this is how so maybe this is how Sapochnik may let it play out. Maybe they'll maybe they'll fall back. We didn't even see the Night King. Maybe the night I've seen that theory that maybe the Night King just won't even show. So so that was that. This is the one that I sent. That, that I is sent the one, yes yes yes. And that is this idea that um, so I know we're jumping around a lot, but like it's. It's it's related to this idea of why didn't they exhume and burn the bodies? Because it is a good question. But I didn't even cross my mind because I just not on that level for the, for this show. <laughs> There's a lot of questions about why they didn't do why characters don't do certain things. Um, uh, but the idea is in in predictions for next week. Not to jump ahead to next week or anything, but uh, one of the theories is that the Night King won't show up to um, the battle because he's uh, that makes him vulnerable. And there's this question of being the sort of keystone for the whole army and so what he'll actually do is go to king's landing on a dragon and with a dragon they and since the king's landing they don't seem to have any they they know i guess like they might know how to deal with uh white walkers but i don't think they really put it into practice the way that the the north has so with one dragon he could probably take out king's landing and that fulfills a bunch of prophecies that bran has had and that like Daenerys had a vision and all the rest of it, and it could fit. Um, and it could mean that that's why we didn't see the Night King at the end of this episode, and that the Night King actually is not going to be part of this battle at all, which would actually throw your prediction about how this season plays out into a very different perspective, because it means that the White Walkers continue to be a threat, even if they defeat this, you know, this army that's outside of Winterfell, um, because now you have King's Landing to deal with, and now you have what could be, for example, a, um, the, the, they put this whole thing together about Cersei being like 
the Night King's uh, bride and this whole thing. Yeah. Now, uh. <laughs> is that is that going to happen? I don't know, but there is. Let's leave all that aside about Cersei. The 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 idea of King's Landing burning and all that has been foreshadowed multiple times throughout the series, and whether or not that's going to be just because John is attacking Daenerys, or ta- or they're both attacking. Um, uh, uh, Cersei or, or what it's not really clear but I do think that it's a it's a it's a potential theory and it might it actually might keep things a little bit interesting because otherwise you do have this problem and this is how um how uh, how Roberts uh, sort of outlines it saying uh, basically if this theory isn't true or that he isn't at the battle and ends up sort of doing a doing a sneak attack on uh, King's Landing um then it requires the Night King to be an incredibly stupid character which like doesn't really fit with what we know about him, but also the show doesn't make any sense anymore. So, um, but I think that's, you know, it's reasonable to say that, you know, if the night King shows up and makes himself vulnerable, putting his whole army at risk, um, for no particular reason, fighting two dragons, then, um, he's not really the threat that's been made out for the, over the course of the show. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. I do have faith in Sapochnik to, but, but, uh, on the other hand, but he can't undo like the way the show's. He also written, right? he also he did not that. write that episode. He's not writing that episode. Like we, we he he can right. do a lot as a director, as an auteur filmmaker. But mm-hmm. if if the Davids who wrote that episode have designated that things are going to go a certain way, then there's only there's only so much you can do about that. Exactly. Exactly. I just don't know. We don't know if the it it just provide an alternate because I think your theory was very valid that the idea that the White Walkers will be dealt with next episode and then it'll just be dealing with Cersei in the episode after that and then after that dealing with the Danny John conflict. Um, I think that's a reasonable theory. I think it does make things a bit more interesting if there is a subversion of our expectations next episode. But who knows? I guess it's it's perhaps too early to, to speculate. Um, just to go back to the writing, I want to talk about how many scenes in this episode are characters saying that they have only two days until retirement. Um, it's like half the episode. <laughs> it's like we get one with Theon is maybe the most egregious. Theon, who has completed his arc. His arc is done. He's had his redemption. Sansa has greeted him, you know, uh, very gratefully. And everyone has received him very warmly. He saved his sister. That's done. And he has said, I'll be the one to defend Bran from the Night King. <laughs> so, check. He's he's gone. He's dead. Uh, yep. The, oh, you, oh, I see. Uh, okay. Actually, I lied. The most egregious one by far is Grey Worm, who has a scene. I can't believe this. <laughs> He has a scene where he goes to Missandei and he's like, so what do you want to do after the war? Why don't we go settle down in a nice uh, town by the beach and live a quiet life, just you and me? If any character has, I can't think of a character on this show has, who has been more marked for death than that. <laughs> that is, that is outstanding. Um, and I think, I think Jorah gets a moment too, when he's like, I'll fight with this sword in the name of my father and I'll, defend house Mormon. And he has that scene with Lyanna Mormon where, mm-hmm. uh, like I, I'm pretty sure he's, he's going to die maybe defending her. There's just a lot of scenes in this episode where it's like, okay, this, this character's clearly going to die. And remember when this show was like, things would happen unexpectedly and characters would yep. die and you would feel like, I can't believe that just happened. I didn't see that coming. 
you see absolutely everything coming in this episode. I mean, I didn't read those scenes that way. Oh, I mean, now that not even the gray worm I mean, I scene, really. Well, I just I shut my brain off every time there's a gray worm scene. <laughs> I just don't care. I don't blame you. Although this, the, I mean, the bit at the beginning of that scene where they both experience microaggressions is um, really, really stellar. No, I, they deserve and could have been used in such a way to make so much more out of the show than it is. But I think the, it's just when I see them, all I can do is think of those interminable scenes uh, in Essos that just went on ad nauseum, mm-hmm. and I were just and we're so. Uh, like they were boring, but they were also just so like offensive. <laughs> like it yeah. was just so yep. it was bad on a thousand mm-hmm. levels. And um, so now when they, you know, when they talk, I'm just like, are these characters? And like, on one hand, I appreciate that they're like the only two uh, uh, people of color on the show left. I think I'm trying to think who else there would be. I can't think of a single other. I, I think that's it. So I don't want them to be as incredible but they're also just like completely characterless you know i just find their arc to and i wish it wasn't i really wish it wasn't because i just but it just it's you know but they're not well written i mean i don't know what to say so when they're talking about oh what are we going to do it's like all right yeah i forgot their their thing and cares i just don't care um but yes i mean yes it's possible that he'll die i guess i just wasn't paying attention (laughs) um uh, and then, uh, yeah, Theon, yeah, I suppose he could as well. Uh, I'm sure he'll have some sacrifice redemption moment, e- even though he's basically done that already. Um, that's, that's what's going to be so funny about it is that he's had his big redemption, his big sacrifice, and they're going to just do it again, except he dies this time. Well, you know, when it comes to Theon, they've never been shy about overdoing it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, it would, it won't surprise me, but yeah, they, they definitely, uh, you're definitely headed that direction, um, but yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I, we've talked a lot about the writing a lot. I, I think that there's a, there was some, there were some good moments. So like, be, like I said, Brian Cogman's been around since Crippled's Bastards and Bro- Broken Things, where he was dealing with Tyrion a lot, and uh, it's funny to see him writing Tyrion now in season eight, where there's one scene where Tyrion makes a comment about how he thought he'd die, which is, I guess, must be a callback to previous season i don't know i'm sure he said this in the past um and uh you know that he would die having sex and yeah. that was his in drinking and all the rest of it um and i it occurred to me as he was saying this i was like yeah that's not anything like Tyrion anymore not for like five or whatever four seasons at mm-hmm. least if not five seasons or, or yeah. more um but then they acknowledge that later on where they say uh uh that's uh He's, you know, where he basically says, you know, I'm not that, I'm not that guy anymore. I, I haven't done that, you know, in, in a long time. And I'm, I've really, it's just, and and I realize it's not since Shay that he, we've even seen him in a sex scene, um, of, of any sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's, uh, it does point to a somewhat interesting character progression there. At least the show acknowledges that this character is nothing like he used to be. Um, whereas last episode, it was kind of left for us to be like what the hell happened to Tyrion? He's like the most boring character in the world. And yeah, they're kind of like, yeah, he's kind of just been, you know, left to, I don't know. I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't mind the idea of Tyrion mellowing out 
over the course of the series, considering he was so wild when the series started. The series, right. the first time we see Tyrion, he's in bed with three prostitutes. Like, that yep. is that is that character at that point in time. Yep. And I don't mind the idea of him, you know, like, chilling out and, and settling down a little bit. Like, that's I think that's an interesting arc for that character. But the way they've done it, like you say, has made him just really not interesting to watch anymore. And it's it's awful because like to for for so many people Tyrion was a primary reason to watch the show, mm-hmm. um, especially in season one. He has some of the most incredible scenes uh, with Bronn. Bronn's even worse now. Mm-hmm. Bronn's worse than Tyrion for sure. He's just the character makes no sense, and now he's like an assassin or something. <laughs> um, so that's the thing, and I'm sure that's going to play into the. Uh, He's going to what, show up midway through the battle, or he's going to be Gandalf the uh, White halfway through the battle. Except it's just him and that crossbow. It's just him and that crossbow, and he shoots Tyrion in the heart or something, and or kills Jamie. Or oh, it's going to be a weird one next it's, week. Oh, um, uh, fingers crossed. There, there's, there's so much to talk about in this episode. I don't even know where to go next. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, well, why don't we talk about the elephant in the room? Because I feel like you're just chomping at the. I'm bit. glad you said it. <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to feel like I was dominating the conversation by, by jumping no, into I've this. No, I'm dominating. It's fine. Go for it. Okay, so Arya has a sex scene in this episode. Um, I don't even know where to start with this. <laughs> Genuinely, because what what happened? God, I mean, I kind of called it last episode. You did credit to you. Credit uh, to you. And you were like, but she's like a kid. And I was like, no, she's a full-grown adult woman. I know, I think but that, listen. That, that's what they're doing. And you were like, maybe it was wish fulfillment. You were just hoping it wouldn't happen. But Here's the thing. And um, I'm going to say this because my initial reaction was one of complete shock and, uh, and fury. And I think what I said on Twitter was someone, the Davids need to be arrested immediately because this is illegal. This can't be happening. Um, mm. That was my initial reaction. I saw a lot, a a truly beguiling number of reactions that were like hand on hips and I'm doing, a, I'm doing it. You can't see me, but I'm doing the hands on hips and doing the face. Well, mm. I guess some people just can't handle an adult woman taking control of her sexuality. And it just boggles my mind. It's like no one knows how to read media anymore. Like everyone's brain is just broken by this show. No one knows how to look at that scene and the way the camera just leers at her and the way that it's positioned just so so that you can see both her side boob and her butt at the same time like it's just shocking to me it is so plainly disgusting and 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 just gross the way the scene is presented it's like it, it reminds me of nothing more so than the and sorry to keep cutting you off but it reminds me of no, okay. it reminds me of nothing more so than those websites from the mid 2000s that were counting down to when Emma Watson was going to turn 18. That's what this scene reminded me of. It's like, hey, she's an adult now. We can make her be naked. It's like, I, I just, I, I can't believe anyone was okay with this. I can't believe it. So, a couple of things about this. Please. Uh, first of all, um, while you're pointing out the camera angles, it is particularly funny because Maisie Williams must have something in her contract about not actually doing full frontal nudity. Oh, sure. Uh, that the extras do not have the luxury yep. of uh, because of the way this was shot. It was so obviously 
um, you know, was hiding things and whatever. And it was like, all right, I get it. Um, and you know, some, sometimes, you know, actors have that in their contracts, but it was just so transparent in a show that's so, um, I don't know, I guess objectifying, mm-hmm. I, I, this is probably the easiest way yeah. to put it, um, of, of women. Uh, and the fact that she, while it certainly still is, uh, in this case, um, it, it like hides certain things. Um, uh, and I just thought that was funny. Um, as far as whether or not this is, I mean, I think the most egregious problem with it is just that she has like this character's interest in men hasn't even been established in eight seasons, yeah. let alone, and not to say that she was interested in anyone else. I, she was never interested in anything other than killing people. This character's had no and sexuality they, at all. Zero. And they stripped her her character of any sort of emotional attachment to things for, a new, again, talk about interminable, those incredibly stupid scenes. Because the... on reflection, again, again, a complete waste of yeah. time. Um, in the house of whatever the, the hell faceless. it was. The black and, house of yeah. black and white, yeah. Um, so all of that, you know, if that character, if we were like, if we had been watching that and you know her training and all that or whatever was supposed to be happening there uh and then somebody told us from the future this character will have sex and before the final battle with no setup <laughs> we'd be like what that's not true but it is true and it did happen so that's dumb i don't care that Maisie williams is in a sex scene i actually thought it would it was maybe i don't know maybe uh uh, historical. I don't think any shows ever. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about this. But I'm sure like some soap opera has done this, but I've never heard of a show going long enough that a character can age sufficiently to be f- from being a kid to being old enough to do a sex scene. And yeah, yeah. And it, like I don't think that's ever happened before. I mean, it never happened in Harry Potter. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I just, I think that, you know, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I just thought it was kind of an interesting observation that I don't know if that's ever actually happened in, in, in history. As for whether or not it makes, if it's bad in the show, I, I honestly, I, I thought it was out of character, which is his most egregious problem. I didn't particularly care about the scene. I think perhaps the biggest problem and somebody else, I really wish I could cite the actual person who said this because it was a very well-observed, um, uh, point, which is that this entire show has spent all of its time from episode one onward building the notion that the Starks are a family who are inseparable from one another. And in the last night before the ultimate apocalyptic battle with the army of the dead, not one Stark seeks out any other Stark Mm -hmm. for any... So Arya doesn't spend this talking to John or Sansa or anyone else. Sansa doesn't go to Theon. Theon doesn't go to John. Like nobody talks to each other. Now they're all in the same castle. And what she what Arya does instead of doing that fundamental thing that she was separated from her family, that she didn't know if they were alive or dead and all the rest of it. And she spends it with Gendry. It's baffling, mm. and, the, and the hound. But like, and the same goes for these other characters. None of them seek each other out, and it's just 
I liked these individual scenes, except, I mean, I didn't care about the Arya Gendry scene, but I liked the scene with her and the Hound. I thought that was kind of engaging. I thought the scene of them all sitting around the fire was engaging, etc. I like Sansa and Danny's scene even. Um, but it does, it, it does present a problem when you create this fundamental family unit that you then... And you haven't suggested there's some sort of rift between them or anything. Maybe you are. Maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is that they've all moved on. But, I mean, it doesn't seem to be the goal of the show to suggest that this is about the Stark family falling apart. It's about the Stark family being reunited eventually. Right? Isn't that the point of this? Isn't that the point of last week's episode? You know, this is this is really interesting because this is the exact same problem that I had with Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Um, <laughs> and I know that's a wild, like, I'm way off the off the road here. Well, that's a show about, that's a movie about well, family. Well, it. Sure. Is it? Is it? it because is. that's yes. what they say at the end of the movie, but the characters are, they don't spend any time together for the entirety of the runtime. They're all separated. They're all in their own little things. So when at the end of the movie, they come together and it's like, yeah, we're a family. It's like, are you? Because you didn't, you haven't spent any time together this entire movie. That really bothered me in that movie. And it's, I, I completely agree with you that it's a very similar problem here. It's these characters who we have been told you know the strength of the stark family unit even when they're sep- you know even when they're separated has been hammered home throughout this entire series and you would think that it, any two any two of them would say i want to spend my maybe my final moments with you my family and not fucking gendry who they i don't even remember i didn't forgot that they even knew each other like i don't remember what their relationship has been up to this point arya and the hound had more of a relationship than she did with gendry yeah, it was funny because I only saw that you said something about Arya had a sex scene or Maisie Williams had a sex scene or something like that. And I, when she sat down with the hound, I was like, whoa, this is not what I. <laughs> oh, can you even imagine? I might have I might have liked that more just for the sheer audacity. That would have been unbelievable. <laughs> um, but uh, but then when it was Gendry, I was like, all right, yeah, this makes a bit more sense. <laughs> um, uh, but uh yeah, I mean, she does have a relationship with Gendry from, I mean, it goes way back, but when she was first, uh, when she was with, uh, who's the guy, Is it, who's the kid that she's oh, friends Hot with? Oh, yeah I, I, yeah, I remember it now, but at the time. Yeah, and they get captured together yeah. or something, and it's a whole thing. But anyway, and then they they lose each other, and they don't, they don't see each other again for a long time. I think all the way up through, who's I think this is when the Faceless Man saves them from a prison or something. And then I think that's when they sort of split up. Something happens. I don't remember. Gendry rose away on a boat at some point. <laughs> wow, I'm not remembering Game of Thrones. I that's apologize. Davos, I'm sure there's people listening to this. That's when Davos frees him from Melisandre and Stannis. That's, that's when he goes away on the boat. And he had, had not yeah, okay. been seen until last season. Right, right. And then he just sort of pops up again. Right. Well, this was the whole point of it. Because he's not going to have anything to do during the battle. He's probably um, going to die too. Who knows? He could... He could. Maybe they just want more deaths. I, I don't know. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I didn't... So, anyway, the point is I didn't react the way that, that perhaps you did. And, like, I think part of the reason is that obviously it's wildly inappropriate to sexualize children. And I think that for all the show's sins, it largely doesn't really do that. Um, I think it's also reasonable that as people age and become adults, right? I think that's a reasonable if you if you 
are you in such a position that you've had a show going on long enough that a character is an adult now? It's not unreasonable that they have a sex scene. I think it's unreasonable that you chose Arya for a sex scene because it doesn't make any sense with her character. Uh, and the person that she has sex with doesn't really make any sense relative to her, you know, relationship wise. But, you know, fine. It's, uh, it is what it is. I, but, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, it didn't bother me the way it bothered you. I, I mean, here's the, and this is the last thing I'll say about this. What bothered me so much about the reaction to this scene from the other direction, the very scolding, condescending tone. Well, you know, finally, this is the first time on Game of Thrones that an adult woman, you know, is taking control of her sexuality and all of a sudden people seem to hate it. I don't know where people get off and I don't know where people, I don't know why anyone is giving Game of Thrones the benefit of the doubt on the depiction of a woman's sexuality, the show that used to have like, you couldn't, the, the, it has been blank episodes without a rape scene counter used to never go up from zero. Like that's what this show is. This show does not respect or understand women's sexuality. It has no conception of that. Well, I mean, and f- in, in saying, in making the statement that you just said, this, this, this fictional person or whatever, this generalized person that they're admitting, admitting that up until this point, in seven plus seasons of the show, this is the first time a character has made a positive sexual choice. If that's what they're yeah. saying, then that is in itself an indictment of the yeah, show. Yeah, it is. And I don't, but I don't think people understand that. I think people are looking at this very positively. And I just don't understand how you see it. Oh, in the grand arc of Game of Thrones, in the grand context of this show, this is, it's horrible. It's horrible that this is that this is the moment where they just where they have, you know, with four episodes to go, they finally have a scene like that. And it's with Arya, a character who has been up to this point, a child who we have seen, who we saw initially as a child and who now they have decided, which, by the way, sketchy time scale. I don't think it's it's been seven or eight years over the course of this show. I don't that that time scale doesn't make sense to me but okay even if you accept that that's true it it is su- like I said like the only way I can think of to describe it is it's like those websites waiting for the young child actresses to be old enough to have sex the people who are you know licking smacking their lips and just like oh I can't wait I can't wait till she's old enough to fuck that's what that scene is to me and it's it is just it is baffling to me, and I understand people can have different opinions, but it's baffling to me that anyone can see that scene positively. <laughs> Laugh all you want. <laughs> what the hell? Listen, okay, I have to, because of... I understand people can have an opinion. You literally, first of all, <laughs> my friend, you have to step off Twitter. I know. Look, I understand. Because- it- it is killing. I understand, you. and I'm gonna. And I, that is the most onla- online response I've heard in a long time. And then you went full like 1990s forum poster <laughs> with. I understand. Look, I understand people have. But I have to say that I have to say that because people will call me. People will call me obnoxious. People will say, "Oh, you're just criticizing. You're, you're going after other people for just having their own opinion." People will say that to me. People have said. People say that to me, so often. And it drives me crazy. So if I don't preface everything I say with it's uh, with the idea that 
especially with a show like this, where people are so fragile about their enjoyment of this show. And it's like, well, just let people enjoy things. Like, if I don't say that I understand that other people can have a different opinion from me, people will lose their minds. And I'm maybe not listeners of this show. Maybe I'm being unfair. I, I, I respect the listeners of this show a great deal. Genuinely. <laughs> genuinely, I do. But it's just, this has been my, and you're right, it's Twitter. This has been my experience being online. It just has been. I have to say it. I can't help myself. I, so I, I appreciate that. And I also know that if you think I don't have this conversation every other day with some random person in real life, this isn't on Twitter because I locked my account ages ago, (laughs) partially for this reason. Um, I'm constantly in this fight with people because, you know, I'll say, you know, that movie sucked. And they'll be like, well, that's your opinion. Yeah, I know. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> that's why I said it. Do so I have to preface every friend? Say, you know, my opinion is this movie is bad. My opinion is that actor wasn't good. My opinion is this. Well, obviously, it's my opinion. It's not a statement of fact because it doesn't. There's no such thing as a fact about a movie. It just well, except for its runtime, right? Mm-hmm. Or that who was in it, right? It, I, it's all opinions, right? That's what film critics are. It's just people stating their opinions, and you can also state your opinion. Great. Now you're a film critic. Aren't you happy? Everyone's a film critic. Who cares? But like. It's such a weirdly bizarre defensive thing people do, and it drives me absolutely insane. And I have it has literally caused friction with people I have lived with <laughs> over the course of the my time uh, uh, as an adult in in the world. It is a genuine problem. Um, so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. I just think that it's it's funny that your reaction is in part due to. Uh, reactions from people online, which I haven't seen these because I tried to avoid as much as I could. Plus, I have, I really suggest you get this a great extension. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but basically it blocks all Game of Thrones spoilers, mm. but it also means that you never have to look at Game of Thrones discourse. Oh, sounds, sounds fantastic. It's just constantly, yeah, I'll send it to you. Um, and it's just helpful because also, if I haven't seen the episode, I, I tend not to get things spoiled, except in this case I did, but generally I don't. Uh, and that's because I was looking at my phone, which doesn't have the extension. Anyway, all right. Well, we put that to the. That's we put that. We've dealt with the. the I can't wait for the comments. Uh, I was neutral. I I didn't see it as some empowering moment, uh, but I didn't think it was particularly good either. I thought it was just. I was horrified. We're moving on. Uh, And you were horrified. So there it is. Um, So, yeah. uh, Why don't we talk about the main, like, what the title is? Yes, please. Let's talk about something good. <laughs> so there's a a scene. Well, we can talk about the whole scene. So we've already mentioned Tormund giving his little speech about who he is. Um, but there's this great scene which is it does feel manufactured because, like, I mean, the whole it feels and it almost feels like a play in some ways where each character comes to the fireplace, this random room where everyone can just where there's no furniture um, <laughs> around a fire and uh, each person comes in with different excuses on why they're there they just want to warm up they want to drink they want to whatever they can't sleep um, and you end up with this uh, semicircle uh, with uh, Sir Davos and uh, Brienne and uh, Podrick and Tormund and is there anybody else there? Davos I already said oh, Davos. Well, then, no, um, you're good. anyway, so yeah, so it's it's that's roughly the group, um, and it's a great group of people. Uh, and oh, and Jamie. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and uh, it's a great cast of characters who we, I think, we like. This is like a collection of the room of people we actually like in the show, and uh, 
they're all very engaging and they're having a little bit of a chat about um you know we all used to we all fought the starks at one point and now we're all here defending winterfell and isn't that crazy and then Tormund talks about his childhood where he killed a giant and then breastfed from a giant or something and that was bizarre and hilarious um and then there's this uh there's this moment where Tyrion I think I think it's Tyrion Tyrion oh Tyrion's also there uh refers to um Brienne as sir uh and in fact uh she's not a knight and um they uh, uh, reveal this. I did find this funny. Uh, they reveal this rule, which I didn't know was a rule because they've never talked about it. I don't think ever in the history of Game of Thrones uh, that any knight can make another knight a knight, uh, or make another person a knight. So that is a useful fact to learn. Uh, and because I mean, of that's this, true. I think uh, that's just true in reality, like or not in in reality in history. I'm pretty sure that's a real rule. A lord can make another lord a. Oh, a lord can make somebody else a lord? Is that a thing? Or a knight can make someone else a knight. Like, I'm pretty sure... I, I, or sir. I had heard yeah. that... I had heard that before this episode, so it comes from somewhere. Maybe it's from the show, but I, I think it might be from history. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, I, I had never heard that before, but fine. I mean, it's... I didn't particularly care. I just thought it was like, oh, that seems like that would happen more often. Um, but, sure. Um, so... Uh, Jamie and, and means of um, repaying Brienne uh, for sticking up for him. Uh, oh, we, didn't, we didn't launch this conversation talking about Jamie's trial. That's because so it doesn't that's... it doesn't matter. Nothing matters in that scene. <laughs> nothing, nothing matters. It, it happens exactly the way we thought it was going to happen. Am I? Okay. Here's what you have to understand about me. I, I say things and I don't think about what people will think about them. I don't uh, sometimes no sometimes i say things way <laughs> soren my dear friend knows this about me that's why that's why we podcast together but it is <laughs> really funny when you say things like that because i feel like um uh, some of our commenters may not feel the same way but sure okay everyone loves me so i'm beloved i'm everyone's best friend <laughs> So, so Jamie, uh, uh, Brienne sticks up for Jamie, uh, advocate. Basically, what we get when, with Jamie's uh, trial scene, just to rewind the clock just slightly, is to say that uh, to ignore, almost entirely ignore his arc all of season seven, I guess, and just go back to when he was still becoming a good guy. <laughs> um, and uh, Brienne sticks up for him in that vein. And uh, in in order to repay her, because he, you know, at first he's like, well, I'll fight with you. Maybe that'll work and I'll be under your command. And and she's like kind of uncomfortable with that. Um, and then she, he sees an opportunity to pay her back. And that is to make her a knight. And it's this really great scene. I thought it was really sweet um, where he makes uh, Brienne officially a knight of the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, and I, yeah, I just, it was completely unexpected and a really great sort of small moment. And ultimately it may not matter. Brienne may die, uh, next episode. Um, but, uh, uh, although I hope she doesn't, um, but I thought it was a really, uh, lovely, uh, way to close out an arc that had been sort of put on hold for quite some time between Brienne and, uh, James. Yeah. This scene is the kind of, it is the kind of final season fan service that I'm very much down for where it's like, mm. you know, it's not 
oh, these these two characters are meeting. What? Which we had, you know, all last season and this and last episode. It's like, oh, my God, it's crazy. It's it's not really that crazy. Um, but this sort of thing where it's like it's not really it's sort of like like you say, it's cleaning up this arc that was kind of that had been on hold for a very long time because these characters haven't been together for a very long time. Um, and doing it in a real, in a way that's really sweet and that makes sense for both of them. And that, like you say, might not matter. Like Brienne might die in the battle, but the fact that she gets this one moment of like, for a character who is who, you know, this is not an interesting thing to say about any character, but it's true of Brienne, has had a very rough go of it these past several seasons. Um, for this character, you know, and this is a nice moment for Jamie too, to have this moment where Jamie, he doesn't have to give up anything for this, but he is able to, in a way that Jamie does over the course of his kind of redemption arc, he uses the power and the privilege that he has to do something good for another person. And he's done this for Brienne in the past, and this is another moment of him doing this for Brienne, using the power that he has to do something nice and to and to elevate someone else. Like, that is, that is good writing. That is good character writing. It is. I mean, it is. It, it does sort of fall into the, to the category of validation by a male character, but the problem is, with this particular thing, there are no female knights. Yes. Yeah. So it literally can't happen any other way, <laughs> um, which is just how the show has been written. You know, talk to George R. R. Martin. There was no reason to make all knights men in this sh- this this narrative unless you were going to do something with that. And I haven't read the books, but I read a lot more and say there isn't really one other than to maybe have this scene also happen in the final book. Um, so, you know, let's. But accepting the rules of this world that George R. R. Martin has created, this scene couldn't happen any other way. So it is what it is. Um, but yes, I thought it was. I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And, and the reason I want to say that um, it's not that the show is entirely pretending like Jamie didn't have a weird sort of diversion from his redemption arc is that there's this great moment when Tyrion, I think it's Tyrion, says to Jamie, uh, "You always knew exactly uh, what she was, and you loved her anyway," referring to to Cersei. Um, to Jamie, basically calling out Jamie for his abandonment of whatever sort of uh, redemption he was he was going for, uh, in favor of loving someone that he knew full well was essentially an evil monster. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I thought it was nice that somebody acknowledged that, and I liked even more that it was Tyrion who is uh, has so often and so uh, you know recently in the show become quite an unperceptive and you know not very discerning character. Um, it was nice to have him be the one to say that to him. Yeah, I, here's one of the things I really like about this. Everything that happens by the fire is that it is it is a scene that has become rare on Game of Thrones and that it's a scene that is not just two people having a one on one conversation. If you think about for every scene in the season premiere, literally every single scene and most of the scenes in this episode, it's like the only thing they know how to write anymore is just two people talking. And it really, for some reason, kind of gets on my nerves. Like, I wish other things would happen on this show. And it's not even that it's just two people talking. It's that almost all of them are talking in the same emotional register. There's not a lot of, like... (laughs) There's just not a lot of, like, uh, tonal difference between a lot of these scenes. It's people kind of talking very even-handedly, very normally, very... uh, Not monotone, but that same just very very level-headed way. And it just, it's, it's why this episode to me, 
and last episode two kind of felt like it went on forever because every scene, almost every scene was just the same thing. It felt like the same thing, but with the characters swapped out. And what's great about everything that happens at this, at this fireplace is that it's not that. It's a lot of characters. They're all zigzagging, bouncing back and forth between each other, all interacting in a very dynamic, cool way. And something happens that isn't just two people talking. It's like, like it is, it's incredible that on this show, that is something I can say that is like worthy of praise, but it's true. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I mean, I, I agree. I think that the, uh, uh, like this is a particularly standout scene. I think there's, you know, some other, even in the scene between the hound and Arya, um, uh, What's the name of the, is his name? Beric Dondarrion. Or was that the, oh no, it's, yeah, that was, that was his, um, his mage guy. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, so at least there you have like sort of a three-way conversation that sort of ends, uh, after not, you know, not long. The, the scene with the, um, uh, Davos, uh, and the, uh, the kid at the soup thingy house has Gilly there. So there's a little bit of that. Obviously it's not really banter, but you know, it's a bit more than just a scene between two people. Um, not that that's inherently a bad thing. Uh, but yes, there's a lot more ensemble play here. But the cast that is an ensemble, it's funny to not have as many of those kinds of scenes. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, of pairings, this is this is a real stretch uh, to call this a segue. But um, there's a scene when uh, uh, when Theon first shows up, uh, where Daenerys asks after Yara, um, because Theon shows up without Yara. Uh, and in that moment, uh, she's so excited or so curious to know what's going on with Yara that it reminded me that, in fact, the person that she has the most chemistry with on the show is a character she hasn't seen in, like, four seasons, which I still find an incredibly bizarre choice on the part of the uh, showrunners. But I still think that uh, Daenerys and Yara would make a fantastic couple, and I don't understand why they didn't just lean into that from the beginning. But whatever. Yeah, you know, this actually reminds me of another scene, um, which is... <laughs> Now, sorry, I I don't want to just completely blow over what you said because I I do I I I think it's an interesting point, um, but it's not an interesting point at all. It's, it's just literally my <laughs> it's literally just fan service. I just I know. it's irritating to me that she has even in that moment she expresses more enthusiasm for a person who has not been in the show. For, or she's been in the show, but not relevant to anything that's going on with Daenerys for four seasons than she has in actual scenes with Kit Harington. I just find it funny. Anyway. Um, but it just, well, it just reminded me of this scene with her and Sansa, um, which is, this is, this episode was not as unintentionally funny as last week's, but this, this scene was to me where Daenerys. Oh, that's funny. I liked it. Well, it's, it's, it was, I found it very amusing and, and, not in an unintentional way, I should clarify. I think I, I am willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on this. Uh, the way that Daenerys goes to Sansa and is and tries to like win her over by being like, hey girl, sisterhood. <laughs> Women gotta stick together. Um, I don't know if you've seen the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but there's a great scene in the first, there's a song, it's a musical, and there's a great number in the first season called Women Gotta Stick Together which you should go look up on YouTube because that's what this scene reminded me of, of like women got to stick together, but I'm the alpha I'm in charge. Um, right. <laughs> and that's what like Daenerys completely flopped attempt to get on Sansa's good side reminded me of because <laughs> Sansa's very like, again, all business. That's what Sansa is at this point, all business straight to the point. Like 
and I and makes a yeah. What about what about, what about the North? The North? Which is a good question. Are you yeah. going to let us have our independence or what? And this is one of two scenes in this episode, by the way, where someone like makes a very good point that two characters need to talk about, and then they are interrupted. Uh, yes, I see. The other one being uh, John. And yes, Maris. which that one is okay because I get it's a cliffhanger, but it's just it's funny that it happened twice. Well, I mean, it it again. It's seeding this. It's why I think that you're right that there is going to be ultimately a some sort of conflict or fight between John and Daenerys, probably as the ultimate conflict of the show, um, which may not be army focused. It may just be like interpersonal. I don't know, but I, I do think I agree with you that, that that you know they're continuing to seed the that conflict. Um, but yeah, no, I actually really like that scene. I thought it was really. Uh, I think. I think. Um, uh, Daenerys is better here than she's been previously, just in terms of like really showing her character without being, you know, without mugging for the camera constantly, which is, I feel like, yeah, like, yeah, you know what I well, mean? It's, 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 it just, it just came across as like a genuine conversation in character without being. Irritated. Well, what's, I, I liked it because I, I didn't find it a very, like it's genuine on Sansa's end, but Daenerys, what I liked about it, and I liked it from a writing perspective too, and almost from a performance perspective. This this idea that Daenerys is <laughs> like, not to get too political, but she is very much type person. This person who just, you know, believes that they have the right to rule and everyone else has to fall in line. But if I have to, I will pretend to be their friend. You know, I will pretend to be charismatic and charming and I I will act like I am... Like they can like me, I will try to be likable, but at the end of the day, I have the right to rule. That's who Daenerys is, um, and I like how that they don't usually engage with that on this show. Usually, they kind of take Daenerys at face value and say, "Well, she does have the right to rule." You know, the one of the worst scenes in the history of this show is the end of season three of all the of all the non-white people reaching out their hands to her, and she's the white queen in the middle. Um, oh, yeah. One of the worst things that's ever happened on this show, um, but. It was that is the way they usually play Daenerys. Is like she is the white. The music is great in that. Scene. I was like, the music is great. Oh in that yeah, scene, but yeah, great. Right. <laughs> uh, Ramin Jawadi never yeah. never fails on this show. Great for sure. Um, but like that's Daenerys for the most part. But this is a rare moment where it feels like they are kind of grasping her character in a more nuanced way, and I liked it. Yeah, um, uh, it, it's uh, shocking to me that uh, that. Uh, thought that wouldn't be political i may have to censor that i may have to censor the name drop i honestly go go for it if you, if you feel like if I, you feel like it's going to be too much <laughs> but like i mean look how many times have you seen his face pasted over daenerys's like photoshopped I, i've seen it more times than i have cared to i listen i don't disagree with you and i think that i'm going to include all of this i'm just saying that i, I may censor the uh the the mench the the the, the mentions of the specific name and I'll let other people piece together who they, who they think we're talking okay, about. That's, that's fair enough. Um, Cause I, 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 it was exactly what I was thinking about before you said it. I, like, <laughs> I know. Don't, don't, don't I know exactly. I'm, I'm on the same page. I'm just, I think it's going to, it's going to cause more problems than it's going to solve. That's fair enough. You're probably um, right. But for all of you wondering who we were talking about, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so sorry. Um, it could be anyone. It could literally be anyone. It was, uh, uh, Nicholas Sarkozy, former president of France. Yeah. Okay. So, um, huge Sarkozy. <laughs> I mean, on this show, you know, they just go for it. <laughs> um. So 
yeah is that it's mostly the episode i mean there again this is another episode where lots of little things but none of them really add up to anything it's all i saw someone on twitter make the great point this episode reminded them of like the end of a mass effect game when you go do all the last conversations with all your crew members before the final battle that's exactly what it is that's what this episode is and and some of those characters haven't got their loyalty high enough, so they will die <laughs> in the final suicide in the suicide. We did not do Jorah's loyalty mission. Um, he's he's out. Oh, hundred percent not. <laughs> he's hundred percent not. Uh, also, I like that from the last episode they had to pull together like uh, uh, people advocating for Tyrion to stick around <laughs> and like c- convince uh, Daenerys to to keep him on. Um, yeah, which it's like they set up a conflict last episode to then resolve it now they set up a conflict in this episode she's pissed at him after the trial and then in the next scene jorah is like oh no but you should keep him and she's like well okay well but it's even weirder because they're like well you're gonna stay down in the crypt because you're important and there's only one of you yeah it's like but he's a military strategist (laughs) who has who has won significant battles yeah why would you put him in a place where he can't strategize (laughs) that's a weird choice (sighs) um but, you know, Daenerys has never actually won a fight, I think. So maybe that's why. She has won every fight because all she has to do is make her dragon set people on fire. Like, that's, but. Well, yeah, like she. She's well, never won a battle. Like she went off during. Right? Like, I think that's never, what you're saying. Yeah, I guess, I guess. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. It's just like, I mean, like she, she went off the caravan that was going to King's Landing, you know, but that wasn't really a battle. Yeah. And, same sense. In, the, in terms yeah, of like two, one army advancing on an, on a stronghold that another army is defending, I don't think she's ever been in that position. Right, exactly, and I think that that's uh, uh, it. It'll show. But anyway, there's John and everybody else who's supposed to be brilliant. You know, every brilliant strategist in the show is yet Winterfell. So. Yeah, and I did like um, that scene. By the way, I think maybe one of my maybe my favorite scene of this episode is that scene where they're all around the war table. This show just does scenes like that really well. It's just those scenes I always like where they're all around the table with, and there's a big map and there's little pieces. And by the way, the best thing in this episode, there's like a million little pieces to represent the army of the dead. It's like, where did oh, yeah. you get all those? There's like, there's a, there's <laughs> so many. Yeah. Instead of just like one big block or something just to represent it. It's like, <laughs> they really went out. They went all out. Um, Whoever's like the craftsman in charge of that made, <laughs> made an effort. The map makers, uh, the cartographers of uh, Game of the Game of Thrones world are like in high demand because everyone has a big map. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but I love that scene. I loved a scene of all all the main characters. Like it occurred to me halfway through, it was like, oh, this is this is every main character except for Cersei, pretty much in one room, like talking strategy about how they're going to deal with this. They're not talking about. You know, personal drama that doesn't really mean anything, um, even though that can be good sometimes. It's like we're talking about no, but the scene isn't a catalyst for that. It's a, uh, it's about the. Yeah. It's like we're t- it's a it's a scene of action. It's taking action, and I was like, finally, something is going to happen on Game of Thrones this season. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's a like I said, I I thought this was a real turn up this episode. I think I I I do want to just push back. There was um somebody made a comment um on the. So uh, two two things I want to address in the the comments. Um, I won't I won't get to name specific people, but um, the two points I just want to uh, to bring up because um, I I do appreciate the comments and I do want to incorporate them in, in as much as that's possible. Um, I don't think the fact that we now see slightly better writing this episode uh, as an indication that 
David Benioff and D.B. Weiss know what they're doing. <laughs> I think that that has been proposed. Um, I'm not saying that it that it means they don't know what they're doing, although I think the great preponderance of evidence would suggest that's the case, but whatever, let's leave that aside. But I don't think that, you know, the fact that this episode was better than the last episode significantly uh, suggests that, you know, a, a course correction. Uh, and specifically the claim was that uh, the John and Danny scenes were bad last episode because they were supposed to be bad because there's going to be a, like, cause they're not meant, they're not right for each other. And that is not at all how that plays out at all. Last episode, it was very clearly that they were supposed to be in love and that this was a wedge between them, but a wedge in a fake love wouldn't make them or in a uh, tense um, shaky love wouldn't have much meaning. So it's supposed to be a conflict between two people who do love each other. Like actually who are supposed to have chemistry. The fact that they don't is not because of some brilliant, you know, subversion by the creators or the writers. It's because these characters are boring and, actors are boring it's that yeah it, that's that's the origin of, of that so i just want to put that to rest for those of you who think that that might be the case for me anyway i can't see that being a, a valid theory uh and i also want to say that i think that um something we don't pay much, probably enough attention to uh, on this show what we, we alluded to it a bit earlier um which is that this show has a problem writing women in large part because it doesn't seem to have any women on the writing staff. Yeah. I don't know if a woman's ever written a show of Game of Thrones. Jane Espenson co-wrote an episode of... Um, this is off the top of my head. I don't remember if this is correct. I'm going to check right now. Jane Espenson co-wrote an episode of the first season, and I think okay. that's it. That I mean, that's shocking. And Jane Espenson's great. Jane Espenson wrote the... Us. Is credited with, alongside the Davids with the teleplay of A Golden Crown, one of the best episodes of the show, for the record one of the best episodes of the show. And I think Vanessa Taylor, I feel like I, we've talked about that in the past. Vanessa Taylor wrote garden of bones in season two and dark wings, dark words in season three. And that is the last time a woman wrote an episode of game of Thrones. Okay. Um, Jane Espenson, also a writer on firefly. Another great show. Um, so what was pointed out is the idea that this show is bad in with writing characters, particularly female characters, particularly characters of color, etc., partially because it has a wildly undiverse writing and showrunning staff, um, and I think that uh, that is a incredibly valid uh, thing to point out, and I completely and wholeheartedly agree. Uh, I think it's uh, we can we talk a lot about the mediocrity of <laughs> David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. Um, uh, but not, I think, enough about how that could be fixed. And one of the ways to fix that is to diversify your writer's room, not just in terms of improving the general talent of the writer's room by hiring any number of the great writers who are in, employed or have been employed by HBO in the past. Again, it baffles me that people have not been asked to work on Game of Thrones, their most successful property that is rolling in money and ratings. Um, but whatever, let's put that aside. Uh, but also, let's put let's you know don't go to your pool. Go to an, to new talent, to new people who might write the show and and take it in even new directions that you don't know uh, that you aren't sort of expecting, or to write in characters who are uh, dynamic and interesting and not just random uh, white folks uh, from uh, uh, 
you know, from Westeros or whatever, like these, these, every character in the show is, sort of fits a single profile. Um, and I think you probably would have avoided a lot of the unbelievable problems that, that occurred throughout, you know, some of the, uh, the earlier seasons uh, and, and later seasons. Um, so, yeah, I think that's an important thing to point out, to point out. And I am embarrassed to say that having literally written a textbook chapter about media representation and how important it is to include uh, and diversify both in front of and behind the camera that I haven't talked about it that much on this on this podcast. It is something that I do firmly believe, and I, I think that um, I appreciate uh, folks pointing that out, uh, and it's something that we should probably pay a bit more <laughs> attention to in the future um, on this show. We talk about it in Deadwood all the time, where it's like, well, you know, the, you know, there's all these female characters in that show which are infinitely better. Yeah. Dead, Deadwood is good. You know, maybe not, maybe not racial representation. We, we talk about that a lot. We do. Exactly. But exactly. Deadwood at least has people of color who are actual characters and who are worth talking about how they are represented in good ways and bad ways. Um, whereas Game of Thrones just doesn't have, like, you want to talk about queer representation on, on this show? There's, is yeah. there, where was one gay character and he's been dead for many years. Oh, is that, uh, What's um, his name? Flowers. Um, well, there's an, oh, well, there was two cause they were a couple, but they're, they both, they both bit it very long, very long time ago. Yeah. And then you had, uh, um, the Viper, uh, what's his name? Oh, Oberyn. Yeah. I guess he was by, yeah. Who was, who was, who was by, but like lasted for, he had maybe, he had maybe the worst death on the entire show. Yeah. And also his bisexuality was also coded in a, such a way that it was, you know, Sort of yeah, it was that bad, like, and, oh, I'll, yeah. I'll fuck anybody. That's what it means to yeah, be bisexual. Exactly. <laughs> that was great, exactly. yeah. Which, uh, as we all know. Um, so, yeah, the show's just not done a great job. Um, I don't know the sexuality of the writers and things, so I don't want to comment on that per se, because I don't actually know. But I do know that they're mostly white men. Um, and that is, I think, quite valid. But I think that your point is absolutely well taken. <laughs> if it is a, let's say, a largely queer writing room, wow. Wow, what are you doing? Yeah, um, so, yeah that would but somehow I think that's that would astonish me. <laughs> would astonish me too. So, so those are the two points I wanted to just bring up in the context of the comments. Uh, we are reading your comments, and we do appreciate them. Uh, we encourage you to continue writing uh, into the show because we uh, we'd love to discuss um, new thoughts and ideas, especially after this week and uh, in going into next week and, and beyond. Um, yeah, uh, one last little bit of trivia. Uh, about uh, Isaac uh, Hempstead Wright, uh, which <laughs> I think I sent you. you did. So, uh, so this is a direct transcript from uh, his appearance on Jimmy Kimmel, uh, where Jimmy Kimmel asks Isaac Hempstead Wright, who plays Bran, he says, uh, "You have a very deadly stare. How do you do this?" Um, and I'm, this is a meme sort of image so i hope this transcript is correct but i'm pretty sure it's 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 accurate so he says uh, so his response is i actually use glasses and i never wear contact lenses so when i'm on the set doing those scenes i can't see anything <laughs> i was once doing a scene with sophie turner and she came to me after the scene and said isaac you scared me it was like you were staring into my soul and i said i'm sorry but i can't see anything <laughs> that's very it's funny. like it's extremely funny, um, and I get that the the anecdote was supposed to be funny, but it does also explain so much. <laughs> um, he literally doesn't know what's going Before on. Before we go out, just tiny thing about Bran that this just reminded me of. 
Sure. Great, genuinely, again, genuinely great writing moment. When everyone leaves the room after that scene I said I really liked, and Tyrion is the only one who says to Bran, do you need help, like, getting out? Yeah. That is, again, that is good writing. That is good character writing. That is... It's not just good writing. It's also, you know, uh, uh, Tyrion, you know, is is a dwarf, right? Like He, he has built this... Bran the saddle in and season I say, one. I, by the way, I say dwarf in the context of the show. I know the term is little person but in the show he's a you know he's refers to himself as a dwarf and it's something he has had to deal with in his life and he is always very responsive to other people who are facing any sort of difficulties in their life so it makes sense for him specifically to be interested in this not just intellectually but also in terms of his lived experience yeah exactly like that is first of all it's good attention to detail because brand does seem to kind of teleport around the castle this season he's he sure you never see him moving he's just sitting stock still in a new location um, so it is, first of all, it's, it's funny in that respect, but it is good writing for Tyrion. Like, that, of course, Tyrion would be, you know, not only would Tyrion pay attention to that, but Tyrion would be the one person who would pay attention to that. That's good. It is good. And it's even funnier that somebody's finally said, like, what the hell is your deal? What is going on? Um, cause everyone else is just like, yeah, Bran's weird now. But <laughs> Tyrion's like, no, uh, I actually want to know. Um, and then I guess he gets that information. Does that conversation happen before or after the fireplace scene? I guess it's, it's before because right? then he sits down with Bran to like, he's like, tell me your story, Bran. And then we cut to him later meeting with Jamie. So, right. That's what it was. It was kind of a weird thing because I thought we cut back to like him getting the story from Bran, but we skipped over that. So Tyrion now knows about Bran's situation. I, I guess, guess so. Uh, but it's just never addressed. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay. That's it, I think. I think that's it. Uh, yeah, that is it. Um, I'm sure we've missed something. Uh, feel free to lambast us in the uh, please comments if we have. Please. Um, we can't introduce next week's episode because we don't know uh, what it's called, but it is going to be some something. Um, it's episode three. Episode three of season eight of Game of Thrones. Uh, we do hope you'll tune in. Um, one bit of, uh, news that we'd like to share before we, uh, we sign off, uh, is that for the next few episodes of Game of Thrones, our plan is, uh, tentatively to have some, uh, guests, uh, join us to discuss, uh, future episodes of the show. So I, uh, I know that's big news. I hope uh, everyone out there is excited. Um, these are, uh, an eclectic group. Um, and I think that you guys will appreciate some of their insights into the show. Um, and, uh, I don't want to give anything away more than that, but I do highly recommend you tune in next week. Um, it's going to be a big episode. It's going to be the, the big battle episode and we've got a great guest going to be joining us to discuss it. So, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Me too. Yeah. All right. You've been listening to Stark Contrast. Uh, we've been Soren Howe and Jay Rosenfields. Uh, you can find this series and our other ongoing shows like Hoopleheads, which is our Deadwood podcast over at MovieFail. Um, you can subscribe to MovieFail podcast, which includes Hoopleheads and Stark Contrast and all of our other shows uh, on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.